Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigational app is the best fully functional GPS when you're out of service. Offline maps allow you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. Okay, we're joined here by Michael Punk author of the revenant who like uh it's bold of you to come and i'm happy that you're here <laughs> because we've made such a hobby out of um express uh, i have I should say we i've made such a hobby out of expressing my dissatisfaction with the movie the revenant because of that they put it in coastal rainforest i've i've heard some rumors about this uh so yeah. i would have thought you'd never would have come talk to me because you'd be like uh insulted and hurt well you know what i have pretty thick skin and uh i'm happy to talk about the the revenant and i uh i'll say good things about it first because i there's a lot of reasons why i'm happy that movie got made oh i can imagine uh, but you know <laughs> uh but there's i've got my own qualms with uh as a as a historian and somebody who cares about history i've got i've got my uh nits to to pick with with the revenant but but let me be clear oh yeah i don't want to start to- i don't want to start totally negative <laughs> i don't want to start totally negative but i just thought that was a good end cuz i'm still re- i'm still like just happy that you're here well i've got a couple of uh of points to raise about your book too at some point depending on how negative this gets and you know if you, oh, guys, really? if you guys really go after me i'm just here, gonna keep super positive i got a, I got a couple of things i want to raise with you so i'm gonna keep super positive then. <laughs> um uh, uh our producer corinne had sent me some articles and um there's a couple articles pointing out it's like funny that around the time i guess it was probably around the time the movie the revenant came out there were articles being written profiles of you 
that were sort of pointing to the fact that you had this other life, that you weren't just a writer. Yeah, I I uh, have had uh, varying interests over the years and uh, have always been uh, passionate about Western history and uh, I love writing. Uh, but I also have also been really interested in uh, public policy and uh, uh, global politics and have had a career that is on that thread as well. And so, so yeah, it uh, all these things kind of mix together and make sense to me in their own way, but that probably takes uh, a little bit of explaining. You were... Uh... You were born in Mount Man country. I was. I born was, in Wyoming. Uh, born in, uh, in Lovell, Wyoming at the foot of the Bighorn Mountains. Did you, have a early, did you have an early fascination with the fur trappers? Totally. And, totally. Yeah. Uh, my dad, my parents are both uh, retired school teachers, and I was uh, super lucky because my mom, an elementary school teacher, really kind of instilled... Uh, a love of, of history. She likes reading and books and, and she loves history. My dad was a biology teacher and a sportsman. And he really, they both are from Kansas. They uh, went out to, to have their first teaching job in Lovell, Wyoming after going to college in, in Kansas. And they fell in love with this, this little town of, of Lovell at the foot of the Bighorns. And my dad in particular, uh, who kind of grew up uh, fishing and small game hunting in in Kansas, uh, kind of discovered the potential of of fishing and hunting in in the West, in in the in the Rockies, and uh, fell in love with that. And then I think, especially as a as a biologist by training, it it gave him that extra, uh, just a different angle and interest on on being outdoors. And so he definitely uh, instilled that in in his kids. Um, and between the two of them, I just, uh, ended up, uh, well, I've ended up where I belong, which is here. It must've been a great advantage to grow up in a place like Wyoming. If you wanted to be a mountain man, because I grew up being obsessed with the history of the West. Yeah. Having never been there. Right. Uh, and, and so everything was like, uh, it felt very removed. Yeah. Well, just. One of the things I love about Western history is how uh, Western American history is how recent a lot of it is. And the little street that I grew up on in Lovell, Wyoming, uh, West Seventh Street, uh, there was an there was an old lady uh, who lived next to us, uh, kind of the little old lady in the little white house next to ours that gave us the vanilla wafers. Was the friendly old lady in the neighborhood, and she had uh, been born in in Lovell. Uh, and she remembered, uh, a mountain man named John Blue, who would ride out of the Bighorn Mountains, uh, every two months and come down into Lovell to, uh, reprovision. And she would tell us this story about John Blue, the mountain man. And I, over the years, uh, driving up into the Bighorns, you could drive past his, his old cabin, but, uh, literally in the space of, of one life, uh, you could touch that earlier era. And I, I love that about Wyoming and Montana. Are you familiar with the writer Ian Frazier? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, I, I took him on his first hunting trip and we floated a river here in Montana. And he'd already, he had lived here and spent quite a bit of time in Montana. But he was saying one of the things he likes about it um, is that when you go to a place where something happened, 
Yeah. Not much happened after that. Yeah. It's and so still, you can go there and still kind of be like, oh, I get it. Yeah. And I thought of that one day I went to see where Dylan Thomas uh, drank himself to death, right? <laughs> In Manhattan. He actually died at the hospital, but like kind of where he collapsed. Yeah. And um, imagine all the shit that's occurred at that intersection. Yeah. Since then. Yeah. It makes it hard to picture. Right. But then when you go to some place where like a big fight happened or some people ran some buffalo over a cliff, uh-huh. you go like, got it. Yeah. Totally can picture. Yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly. Oh, I mean, I'm a, I, I love Civil War history too and, and have visited a lot of the Civil War battlefields back east. And one of the sad things about a lot of them is they haven't been very well preserved. And, you know, there's a, there's a McDonald's uh, right in the middle of the place where the, you know, the cannons were supposed to be set up. And it's, <laughs> it's harder to imagine. And out here, I was thinking about it today because I drove by the, the Madison Buffalo Jump, which I always send people to go see because I say what I love about the Madison Buffalo Jump is you hike up on that, on that cliff and you stand up out there and you look down on the Valley of the Three Forks and it looks quite pretty close to what it looked like you know, 200 years ago. And that's just a really cool thing that we, you know, can't take for granted in this big country that we live in out here. I suppose it's worth pointing out that in the case of the Madison Buffalo Jump, uh, the animals are gone. The animals are gone. Which is a noticeable omission. That part is different. Uh, Yeah. Uh, The landscape uh, uh, looks similar. You can talk about what your just walk everybody through your books, the books you've done. Sure. So uh, I don't, don't want to overfocus. I do want to focus a lot on the Revenant because it's, <laughs> it's a not not. not I don't want to focus a lot on the Revenant. I want to focus on uh, our mutual interest in those people. Yeah. And what they were up to. Yeah. Sure. Okay. So uh, when I I'm a lawyer by training, I went to to college. I grew up in Wyoming, went to college uh, back east and went to law school. And after law school, went to work in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, I worked for Senator Bacchus. That's where I met my wife. She's from, Mon- she's from Montana. I met her working for, in Senator Bacchus's office. Uh, and I liked working in government a lot. Uh, I found myself... Is that right? You don't hear that very often. No, I, I, I like... Uh, public policy and, uh, and I enjoy, uh, especially the most recent job I had of being a U.S. ambassador. I love representing the uh, United States of America overseas and I love negotiating on behalf of the country. It was, it was a blast. I love that. Um, but I found myself in Washington, D.C. Uh, for a time not working in government, instead working in a law firm. And I did not like working in a law firm. And I started trying to plot my way into something different. And I had the idea, I'd always been interested in in writing. And I thought, well, if I can be a writer, I can live wherever I want to live. And my wife and I uh, both wanted to move back to the West. And so I started uh, uh, getting up early in the morning and writing what became The Revenant. And and I... (laughs) I always, for me, uh, really relate when I saw Shawshank Redemption. And I always felt like my Shawshank Redemption moment was kind of chipping through the <laughs> the wall of my cell with those hand tools, was kind of sitting down at the computer every day and chipping away at, at writing The Revenant. And when 
when I was able to get it published and we sold the film rights, that was our kind of escape moment. Were you surprised to get it published? Um, in, I didn't take it for granted for sure. I, as I was going along, I was feeling like I had more and more of a chance. I mean, when, when I started writing a book, I didn't really know if I could do it. And then I got about halfway into it and I'm like, you know what? I can definitely finish this. And I felt like it was a great story. I didn't know anything about publishing, but I started getting encouragement from people. Um, I guess I wasn't surprised, but I was, I was, I was thrilled, believe me, because I did, I did feel like that was my opportunity to live where I wanted to live and, and go do something different. And working as a writer is one of the great luxuries that you can have because you have so much freedom to kind of follow you, the things you're interested in. What year did it come out? It came out in, I, I, uh, I got the contract to publish it right before 9-11. Uh, so 2001, and it was, uh, I think, published in 2002. And then you, you went on and published uh, two more or three more? Moved back to Montana after we sold the book and uh, uh, published, researched and published two nonfiction books while living in, in Montana. The first one is a nonfiction book called Fire and Brimstone about uh, a mining disaster in Butte in 1917. It's a very narrative nonfiction style book. I hope it's told in a very kind of engaging, uh, almost novelistic type of way, but it's completely uh, nonfiction. Nothing's made up. Uh, then after that, I wrote Last Stand, uh, the book about the buffalo. And uh, it was after writing Last Stand that uh, I had the opportunity to, to be U.S. ambassador to the World Trade Organization. So... We moved over to Geneva, Switzerland, my family and I, for, for six years. We're over there. And uh, after I came back from that, started work on the new book, which will come out in uh, June of next year, which is, is called Ridgeline. It's a, another novel. Don't go over the Ridgeline. Well, that, that turned out to be, uh, in hindsight, what the lesson, what the lesson should have been. Tell, uh, can you, yeah, it's like an apocalypse now, right? Never get out of the boat. Never get off the boat. Never get off the boat and then never go over the Ridgeline. Never ridge go over the Ridgeline. You can share, because we, we've talked about, uh, I know the subject uh, of the book. Yeah. And we talk about it now and then, and actually one day we're spec trying to guess what year it was, and someone pointed out that, well, tell people what the book is. So Ridgeline is a novel that is based on the Fetterman fight, which is a, uh, until the Battle of the Little Bighorn, the Fetterman fight was the worst U.S. military defeat in, in U.S. military history. 81 guys right over a ridgeline in the Powder River Valley of Wyoming in 1866 and they ride into a massive trap that has been set by the Lakota and the Cheyenne and the Arapaho. And uh, without revealing too much, uh, it, it ends badly for, for a lot of them, uh, the soldiers, that is. Um, but it's a... Like badly in a real... Uh, in a, it ends very badly for a lot of them. Um, and, uh, like even post-mortem. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, this, this, this was not, <laughs> trying not to reveal too this much. This was not, this was not pretty, but it's a, it's a, it's an incredible historical moment and story. And it's, it takes place in the midst of what is often called Red Clouds War, which was a, uh, war 
that broke out after the after the uh, U.S. foisted broke one treaty and foisted another one on uh, on the tribes. Walk people through that timeline. Like, yeah, it, it basically was. Correct me where I'm wrong and pick up, you know, where, where it sees fit. But everybody's familiar with the Oregon Trail. Yep. Um, people wanted to spur off the Oregon Trail and get up to the gold fields in the north. And it, that war was kind of centered around like, can we get sa- can, can whites have safe passage? Come to Montana to go to the north, right? Yeah. So I mean, that, that was that like sort of the bait. That was the defining argument, right? That is well, the way I would describe it is uh, before the Civil War, there was a flood of migration from the east uh, to, to California and Oregon. And tons of people coming across the continent, including coming across uh, what's now Wyoming, but they were all headed west. They're all headed to California and Oregon. And the tribes in that era were not super psyched about that, and there was a lot of conflict, but the U.S. Uh, negotiated tr- a treaty that basically gave access uh, for, uh, across the Oregon Trail. Is, and, is it fair to say, like, the gripe centered around um, impacts on wildlife movements and other things, like they're, they're grazing areas heavily, displacing animals out of areas that once had animals, making hunting hard? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was that certainly happened along the Oregon Trail, but for a while there was a bit of what what the treaty also did is it gave is it gave the tribes uh, most of the land to the north of the Oregon Trail to the north of the of the North Platte River, and and there was a, a fair amount of equilibrium there for a while. What happens after the Civil War, during and after the Civil War, and even right before, is they discover gold in, in Montana. And all of a sudden, people are not content anymore to sort of go across the Oregon Trail on their way to California and Oregon. As you say, they start spurring off and going up to uh, the gold fields of Montana. Uh, Bozeman Trail, uh, for example, uh, heading, going to, to Bozeman. And the quickest way to get there was right through the Powder River Valley. And that was uh, great uh, hunting land and was had absolutely been given to the tribes as part of this this earlier treaty and so uh the U- the u.s as it does uh multiple times throughout 19th century history when treaties with the tribes become inconvenient uh they just either break them or force a renegotiation and in this case they they essentially did both They've, they negotiated a new treaty allowing the U.S. to go through the Powder River Valley, but they negotiated it largely with tribes that didn't live in the Powder River Valley. And as you might imagine, uh, the, that, that result uh, was enraging to the, to the tribes that actually lived there. And what came out of that was, was war, uh, namely Red Clouds War. Uh, and... It's one of the things that's interesting about Red Cloud's War is the is the Indians win. Uh, uh, their victory ends up not lasting very long, but they actually win this war. And as a result of winning the war, uh, the U.S. Army uh, uh, retreats 
from the, the forts that they had set up in the Powder River Valley. And for a period of time, the, the lands went back to the, to the tribes. What happens then uh, is they discover gold in the Black Hills. And that leads in 1876 to a new gold rush. Uh, and uh, well, I th actually, I think it was 1874 that is, was a discovery of gold. And within two years, uh, fast forward almost to the, to the end of the Indian Wars, because at that point, there's just not enough space anymore uh, for them to, to coexist. And, uh, and they, the Indian Wars come to a fairly quick end, end after that. I think what's interesting in looking at your uh, your collection of work is that you have like a mountain man book, The Revenant, which is very early stage exploitation of the West, like very early stage exploration yep. of the West, right? Like people are still just kind of like trying to fill in the map, right? They're totally. like making um, the characters in there, Hugh Glass and others are making sort of like legitimate discoveries about what river flows in the right. And then you have uh, this forthcoming work that's kind of, a, a, you know, at, at a real hot point, right? And then your Buffalo book sort of is almost um, the aftermath. Like Before dealing, and aftermath. Like dealing, yeah. yeah, dealing yeah. with kind of like focused on this, this, this other element of the West of, of people getting around to look and be like, holy shit. Yeah. What did we do? Yeah. Well, what's uh, and and we talked about this a little bit, just how in many ways how compact the uh, recent history of the the West is the the amount of time that that European Americans have been out here. It all happens in a in the span of a of a couple of centuries, and uh, there's a lot that goes on in the, the 19th century, for example. When you think about uh, you know Lewis and Clark coming out here at the beginning of the of the 19th century and by the end of the 19th century you know the buffalo are virtually gone and 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 the whole west is is settled by european americans and for all of that to happen in a hundred years is is stunning when you think about it that that's one lifetime one of the things i love about this this new book is when I was doing the research for for Ridgeline and and learning about the the Powder River War, I, I was uh, thrilled to discover that Jim Bridger shows up as an old man scouting for the U.S. Army. And for people who read The Revenant, uh, Jim Bridger in 1823 in The Revenant is the boy who's out there. He's the inexperienced uh, boy who is one of the two people who abandoned Hugh Glass. And the fact that in his life, he goes from, you know, being part of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company and being in this part of the country uh, as one of the first uh, European Americans to come out here and trap and lives through the fur, the fur trade era. He establishes a fort. Uh, he, he, first of all, he gets half the state named after him. He gets half the state named after him, <laughs> including a place that's, you know, not more than a couple hundred yards from here. Um, but he, he, it's, it's his, uh, recommendation that, uh, that, uh, determines the path for, for the South Pass, uh, which is where the Oregon Trail passes over. He sets up a fort on the Oregon Trail and, uh, makes money selling, 
uh, goods and supplies to to immigrants. So he lives through that whole uh, pioneer era. He scouts for pioneers. He ends up scouting for the U.S. Army, uh, and he sees the the end of the of the Indian Wars in his life. Yeah, and that's that's just it's epic. It's it's hard to even imagine that. The thing I think about him is you know when everybody uh, talks about how everything went to shit in their lifetime. You know, <laughs> used to be no one was here. It used to be no one yeah. skied this hill, right? Can you imagine Bridger? Well, he'd well, have to be like, no, no, exactly. Things Let me tell I you something. Really watch yeah. things Let go me tell you shit. Something. <laughs> well, and one of the one of the really fascinating anecdotes uh, that I came across, and again, in doing the research for this new book, is not only was Jim Bridger scouting for the U.S. Army in this era, uh, but James Beckworth also was. Who uh, who people who know about uh, the former slave, era, right? Former slave and African American uh, mountain man. And he had actually come out here as part of that same uh, uh, company, the Rocky Mountain Fur Company, that, that Jim Bridger had been a part. So both of these guys come out as teenagers uh, to, to the wild, wild west of the 1820s. And then both of them end up together as 60-year-old men scouting for the U.S. Army in 1866. And they literally get sent out by the commanding officer of the fort to, find, to figure out where the Indians are. And I just imagine them, and this happened, you know, Jim Bridger and James Beckworth riding their horses up the Powder River Valley as 60-year-old men reminiscing on their lives. And, you know, what conversations were they having? And I try and think about that as part of, as part of the book. One of the things I wonder about is, uh, you know, was somebody like Jim Bridger, who was uh, known uh, as a person of, of incredible integrity, was he regretting in any way how much he had helped open up the West? I think, and, I think absolutely. Boone had that. Boone did. Yeah. And, and there's, there's, a, there's a set of conversations I think about often like that. Like when Boone was very, very old in his 70s, he would go on extended hunting trips with his own slave who became like his hunting buddy his confidant and um to imagine and this is after he'd been displaced out of places and displaced out of places and he definitely uh you know if you look in his biography he had an awareness of what had been lost and you'd have to think that bridger had it i i i do think he had that and he uh was married uh into the shoshone tribe so he had uh, lived the the Native American culture, and he was watching it uh, literally being decimated. Uh, I can't imagine that there were not uh, uh, profound feelings of of misgivings about what was was going on. And so, it's always difficult because you don't want to uh, sort of impose. 21st century views of the universe on historical characters. And, and, uh, and so I try not to do that, but I, I think that somebody like Bridger, uh, must've had those types of misgivings. Well, the way I think that it's, I don't think it's 20, I don't think it's 21st century views necessarily because here's a person who derived his his income and livelihood from the land's ability to put off resources. Okay. So 
at a time there was at least the hope and and your you watched it happen to your peers that you could turn great fortune from trapping beaver right and it was yep. just there for the taking yep and food was readily available it just like it was not like securing food was not an issue yeah there was no pressure about i mean you had pressure from like indigenous forces who didn't want you on their landscape but because you regarded that in, in a sort of like low priority way it felt like there was like an inexhaustible supply of land out there so even if you just look at it totally pragmatically and look at it just in very personally when you get to where the, the beaver are gone um it's much harder to secure food. Huge areas that had buffalo have been depleted of buffalo, and now you need to make your living contracting out mm-hmm. to the military. Yeah, um, I don't think you need to get too nostalgic mm-hmm. to be like to, to realize that you have been that your fortunes have gone down. Yeah, well, and the they must have had a. I mean, at one level, they experienced nature. As and and you see this throughout the 19th century, you know people in that era had a a view of nature where first and foremost they had to survive, and so they were probably less focused on is it a pretty vista, is it a pretty sunset, but by the same token, I just can't imagine that they did not have uh, an appreciation for the beauty of the place that they that they lived in, and I, in small ways today as uh, when I try and uh, imagine uh, what it felt like to live in that era, I feel nostalgia for parts of Montana that that I knew when they were wild and they're not wild anymore. And it makes me uh, angry sometimes when I, when I see that. And to see it on the scale that, that they were seeing it, uh, and that's talking about, uh, about Jim Bridger, uh, we haven't even got yet to the perspective of of the Native Amer- Native Americans who see their land, their not only their land but their 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 whole culture and way of living uh, overturned in a in a space of of a few years. It it it's it's almost impossible to imagine what what that would have felt like. What it what it, one of the things I try and do in the book is to think about what did that feel like. That's one of the I think the fun things you can do with fiction is you can imagine not just, you don't just talk about what happened, you imagine how did it feel and how did it feel for the people who were living in that era to experience change at that scale. Does it give away too much to uh, tell us like whose perspective the book is told? So it's told from multiple perspectives. Uh, And I think a story that rich and complex has to be told from, from multiple perspectives. And one of the uh, things that, one of the problems I have with a lot of Western American history is I think too often it's told only from the the European American uh, perspective. And uh, the, the Native perspective is given short shrift. And so I try and tell the story from, from multiple perspectives. One of the experiences that I had, actually one of the one of the greatest jobs I had ever in my life is uh, I uh, uh, was born and raised in part in Lovell, Wyoming, and uh, went to junior high and high school in Torrington, Wyoming, in the southeastern corner of the state, and uh, loved history. And 
had th- this job where I worked in the summers of high school and college doing working for the National Park Service at Fort Laramie National Historic Site and dressed up every day, literally in an 1876 cavalry, cavalry uniform and uh, shot guns and cannons and baked bread using the historic bread recipe and talked to tourists all day about the history of the West. That was my job. And I, I realized even at the time that the, the story that we were telling about the history of the West uh, was quite one-sided. Uh, and I've always felt like we could do a better job of telling that story. And, and I hope, you know, in some measure I'm doing that with this, this new book. It's difficult to pull off though, because, um, you can give the perspective of your own culture and own people, but there's a little bit of a trap in trying to give the perspective of someone else because even a well-intentioned effort can be met with accusations of colonial appropriation, cultural appropriation, right? And so it's like, I, I applaud you for not just turning around and saying, forget it. Well, like it'll never be rewarded. Yeah. It'll always be criticized. Yeah. Uh, the best that I can do is to, uh, from where I sit, do all the research and all the work that I can to learn all aspects of the history and try and write it down in the way that uh, I hope is accurate and then subject it, which I've done. Uh, to a lot of to readers with a lot of different perspectives, including uh, a, a lot of different Native American readers, and uh, this book has been through a lot of drafts, and uh, the draft that it's in reflects a lot of that input. So, I am sure that I'm not telling the story perfectly. Uh, I know that's not the case. I hope I'm telling it in a in a fair way that. Uh, that brings some balance to the story. And at that point, if I get things wrong, um, people can tell me about that and we can have that conversation and we can continue to have that conversation and learn all of us. But I think that's a more productive way to, 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 deal, with an issue, to deal with issues like that than to ignore them or uh, worse, to, to write it from only one perspective. Are you familiar with the historian Dan Flores? Uh, I no, not in detail. Um, I know he's written a lot about the the Buffalo and yeah, uh, but I don't. I'm not an expert on him at all. Yeah, he's done some pretty in, influential work, and um, he's an environmental historian. When I was in graduate school, I took uh, his one of his seminar courses. He had like I don't know. If, you had to sort of take a seminar outside of your discipline, you know. So I took an environmental history seminar with Dan Flores, and he gave a lecture one day about the Battle of Adobe Walls. I think it was like the Second Battle of Adobe Walls. I don't know if you ever heard of this. Yeah, it was this it. is with the Buffalo Hunters and the- yeah. So they weren't supposed to they weren't supposed to hunt south of the state s- Southern Pacific Rail Line, yeah. right? They weren't supposed to move into the Southern right. Plains, and these guys paid little little to no attention yep. to that. Kind of like what you're talking about with using the Bozeman Trail. And they were very well armed. Um Sharps well buff- Sharps Buffalo rifles, as yeah. I remember. And uh extraordinarily good shooters. Had this 
little fortress called Adobe Walls, and they ran hide hunting operations out of there, and it was like very defendable, and they were experts. Um, and at one point in time, the tribes gathered in great number to go once and for all eliminate these guys out of this area. And in, in native tellings of what happened, on the way to this raid, a, a young brave kills a skunk, which is a, a thing you do not do on the way to a fight. When they get to Adobe Walls, the hide hunters manage to kill a chief at like some 800, 900 pot shot, and they kill a chief. And the battle, which was supposed to be this great routing of these hide hunters, fizzles, and the Indians ride off. And in the telling of the hide hunters at Adobe Walls, it was their like superior skill, superior firepower, right, that won the day. And Flores explains how in the, I think it was the Southern Cheyenne telling, is that that guy killed a skunk on the way to that fight. Mm-hmm. And Flores then puts it to you like, um, who's right? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's a perfect example of, of why we should be looking at these historical incidents from multiple perspectives. And, uh, you know, uh, we haven't done that in our history. We haven't done a good job of that at all. And so, uh, again, uh, I, I'm sure that there are plenty of mistakes in, in my book, but I, I do hope that I've made the effort to, to tell the best story that I possibly can, including uh, making a really big effort to, to, uh, to bring multiple perspectives to bear. You mentioned earlier um, that the Fetterman fight was kind of the biggest skirmish in the West prior to Little Bighorn. Mm-hmm. And I've always really liked reading about Little Bighorn. And I think that if you read contemporary works about the Battle of Little Bighorn, it's sort of, they, they present it as sort of this great culmination, right? That all these, these, these like outrageous figures and these like outsized human beings, right? Like collided in this, this moment, this sort of like crescendo of tension in the American West. And this lives like that. Like yeah. we know that. I was reading this book from the 60s recently that touches briefly on Little Bighorn and his treatment of Little Bighorn. I think this is before it became popular. His treatment of Little Bighorn was basically like if you were talking about the D-Day invasions, okay? So there's this massive undertaking that's going on. And meanwhile, off in some corner, a officer makes a mistake and gets a couple hundred people killed on D-Day. And then later, we talk about June 6, mm. June 6, 1944, Later, we talk about it, and we're like, D-Day, huge, uh, successful objective, turn the tide. Oh, and also, this guy kind of screwed up and got everybody killed. Like, that was his, like, in the 1960s, that was his viewpoint of Little Bighorn. <laughs> Didn't even really warrant, it was just an anomaly. Uh. Like, a guy made a stupid mistake, had no real bearing on how the Indian Wars went. Everything kept right on schedule. We still, like, subjugated the Sioux, um, it was just, it just doesn't really, like, we focus on it, but why are we focused on this? Yeah. It didn't change the course of, it didn't change. 
So here's the where- The course I, of destiny, yeah. right? I think I disagree with that, that theory. Okay. And I'll tell you why. Um, well, first of all, look, these, these battles where, uh, where armies get wiped out are intrinsically fascinating. And it's like, a, you know, you kind of can't look away. And so the Fetterman fight, the uh, Battle of Little Bighorn, they just, they're, they're catnip in terms of our interest because they're just so uh, graphic. Um, but what I think is interesting about the difference between the Fetterman fight and the, uh, the Battle of Little Bighorn is the impact that the battles had politically. And so I agree a little bit with the point that the person was making that from a military standpoint, um, you know, we're talking about uh, 80 guys who die in the Fetterman fight. And I don't remember the precise number with Custer, 220 or something like yeah. that. Um, and if, if you compare that to D-Day, uh, that is not a massive uh, battle. But both of those uh, fights happened at really interesting political moments in U.S. history. The Fetterman fight happens in 1866, two years after the end of the Civil War, when the U.S. is weary of war. They've completely uh, 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 drawn down the size of the U.S. Army. Um, They're preoccupied with trying to manage uh, the uh, the reconstruction of the South, and that required a huge military presence in and of itself. And there just was no interest in the, uh, in 1866 in in having a big fight out west. And so when Fetterman, uh, when the Fetterman defeat happens, the U.S. pulls back, and the Indians win this war for a couple of years. My favorite anecdote about the Custer battle is Custer uh, fight, the Battle of Little Bighorn, occurs on June 25th, 1876. 1876. Takes a long time for the news to travel back to Washington, D.C. Hits on Independence Day? The (laughs) news of uh, the Custer massacre uh, arrives in Washington, D.C. on July 4th, 1876, literally in the midst of the celebration of the centennial of the hundred year anniversary of the country. It's like the biggest turd in the punch bowl in American <laughs> history to that point. And, and the political reaction to the battle of little bighorn is the opposite of the, of the reaction to the Fetterman fight. Uh, they decide enough. We're not going to lose, uh, to the Indians in the West. And, they, beginning at that moment, uh, they send out uh, Nelson Miles, who you know is one of the most kind of badass uh, warriors in the in the U.S. Army, and he and and a big army go out west and they start uh, doing something they hadn't done very much before, which is attacking uh, the Indians in the winter when they were least able to fight, and within uh, two years. The Indian Wars are over. Um, Crazy Horse is uh, is on the reservation. Uh, 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 he rolled up the Nez Perce too the next summer. The Nez yeah, Perce yeah. Uh, surrender, and uh, 
uh, Sitting Bull is in exile in Canada. The Indian Wars are over. And so the political significance of those battles, even though in the, if you look at them compared to some of the Civil War battles or, or other battles where thousands of people die, um, the, the political sig significance of those battles, I think, was huge. Clean and protect your firearms with Riptide Armory. Riptide, a veteran-founded business. It's dedicated to producing American-made cleaning chemicals and also dedicated to creating American jobs. And that commitment is embodied in every product that's bottled, labeled, and shipped from their Arvada, Colorado facility. Safe for all firearm types and surfaces. Embrace the power of American ingenuity and protect your firearms with the best. Visit RiptideArmory.com. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. I, for one, use it on all of my outboard engines up in Alaska every year. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. At O'Reilly Auto Parts, they offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. Man, I'm always swinging through my uh, local O'Reilly Auto Parts to get stuff ranging from car parts and accessories to boat batteries. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. And if you're a do-it-yourselfer and need a specialty tool to finish the job, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and ask about their loaner tool program. Simply pay a refundable deposit and borrow the right tool, then get your deposit back when it's returned. That way you don't have to go buy some you know, super expensive thing that you need like once every five years. You just borrow it, get your refund back. Need your windshield wipers replaced, a brake light fixed, or quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. In reading, um, the Revenant. The thing I really appreciate. I knew you were going to come around to this. We've warmed up a little bit now, so <laughs> oh, no. so you've you've been warming up. I feel like you've been like like a wind windmilling for a sucker punch. No, so bring all. it on, bring in, it on. In reading the Revenant, you solved for me. You solved for me a, a thing I never understood, and it was a detail that I really appreciated because I like uh, details. Um, you familiar with the director Michael Mann? Yeah, he made like he. I love him. 
the he guy, also made Last of the Mohicans. Yeah. yeah. So, and Ali, and mm-hmm. Lord knows what other movies. Um, the guy, this has no bearing on anything, but the cinematographer, Mo Fallon, that sort of like gave our show, like made our show like the way it is. Like it looks the way it is because mm-hmm. this guy, Mo Fallon. Uh, Mo Fallon had, had been Michael Mann's assistant at a time. And Mo would talk, talks about how Michael Mann was very uh, attuned to details. And he would talk about how humans are really smart animals, you know, and he viewed audiences that way, like intelligent animals. And he wanted things to look and feel right. You know, I think it's one of the great strengths like Cormac McCarthy's, he really mm-hmm. cares, like how things look. But in the book, I'd always known that Mount, you'd see mountain men wearing pants that were leather mm. to the knee to the knee and you see depictions of them yeah. leather to the knee and wool down wool from then there down yeah. Telfo- I, I never ever thought about what that was except yeah. for i don't know so uh the state-of-the-art pants for a uh state-of-the-art mountain man was uh was leather to the knee and wool from the knee down because uh uh, because wool dries quickly and remains warm when it's wet. And of course, what the fur traders were doing, what the uh, beaver trappers were doing, was wading into to cricks to pull out uh, beaver traps. So they were constantly wading in and out of water. And uh, you can imagine wet, uh, wet buckskin uh, is heavy and uncomfortable and doesn't keep you warm and so they yeah they wore these uh special pants uh like yeah uh (laughs) knee boots yeah exactly (laughs) but the but the buckskin upper what was the what's the advantage of that why wasn't it just uh all wool wool that's a good question um durability durability and availability of resources probably yeah and uh so i guess they didn't have enough wool to to get the whole pant made out of wool, so they just they did it from the knee down, and I think they're pretty conscious about looks too. So they, uh, I, I, I get the sense they like the look of uh, of buckskin and and uh, you know all that, and so uh, a little bit of wool what, maybe was what enough. Had, what research did you do that gave, that sort of brought about ideas that they were sort of that had they had ideas of fashion or look? Oh, there was, I, there, was there were hairstyles. Oh my God, they like they boom, were like like in the frontiersmen a little bit earlier, but they would they had a, they would plait their hair, they would well, braid their hair in a specific way. Absolutely, and I think they admired the dress of 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 a lot of the the native tribes who also uh, had uh, wonderful. Uh, clothing that they that they wore and they copied that and um, I think there was a I think they were quite fashion conscious in their in their own way. A thing that's troubled me, uh, like if there's a for any historians out there, for any PhD candidates out there, there is a thing that has not been adequately explained about the mountain men, and I'll put it to you to see if you have any insights on it. Do you have any exposure to trapping? Do you have you done much trapping? I I have not. trapped myself i've no so i won't overstate my expertise here a beaver in a foothold trap is very very difficult to hang on to um we use today the it's it's astounding how little the technology is switched Mm -hmm. between what they were using which is a double long spring trap 
I mean, granted, these are hand forged. Yep. Um, and and we still use double long spring traps today. Like you catch beavers, you can. Uh, we've kind of gradually switched to something called a coil spring. But I own some, have caught beaver in them, and they are like dead ringers for what they use yep. in those days. Yep. However, um, we use now a one way slide, and you put it on a wire or a chain. And it's like when the beaver gets caught in the trap, he instinctively dives for deep water. And there's a one-way slide wire. And he can take the trap down into deep water. And it's, the slide wire is anchored on both ends. It's anchored on the bank, and it's anchored out in three, four feet of water. He can't come back up. The trap won't come back up. And that's how you drown him. Mm-hmm. Anytime that beaver jacks that lower stake out or dicks around too much on the bank and twists that drowner wire up so that it, the slide can't slide, or any time he any way incapacitates that slide wire, it's like it's probably a gone beaver. Mm. You're going to have a toenail. He's going to be, he just is gone. You, you can't hang on to him. And when you read historical accounts of how they made their sets, I don't think anyone yet understands how they anchored off mm. their sets because any explanation I've read, I'm like, no, yeah, you wouldn't have the success rate because these guys are running like six sets at a time. A lot of them carried six traps. You see that all the time and they're pulling like four or five beaver a day. No one knows how they rigged their shit. Yeah. And that would be a great avenue of exploration for someone to find out to like know. how they actually rigged their shit. And that some historian would go out and catch and have a four or five out of six trap success ratio using that equipment, I don't think you could do it. Yeah, People make a big deal out of napping an arrowhead nowadays and like killing a deer with it. That doesn't impress me at all. It would impress me to set six traps <laughs> with no slide wires and catch five beavers. I don't know the answer to that. I guess I, I knew that the way that the, the, the beaver died was by drowning, but uh-huh. I don't know how they... I don't remember reading how they... Uh, how they rigged it. The people um, that saw it happen didn't think to describe it. I have no, they obviously had it didn't figured think out. About it. Yeah, they just did it, right? And they would have been, undoubtedly, they would have been very particular about water depth uh-huh. and all kinds of other considerations. But instead, you just imagine now, it's like these people catching all these beavers and you overlook like what it actually involved. Yeah, yeah. And to do it while not getting killed. Mm-hmm. Well, I think about that every time I'm fishing because they're, you know, I'm walking up the same creeks that they were setting uh, beaver traps on. And, you know, they're thickly vegetated. And I'm not worried about somebody hiding in the trees who wants to kill me. And, uh, and they were. And you almost can't see how any of those guys survived. Uh, and My God, did they not survive, though? Oh. I mean, they died like flies. Well, that's one of the reasons why the fact that, that Jim Bridger and, and James Beckworth are 60, 60 something guys in, you know, 18, in the 1860s, and the fact that they've lived through decades of a, a pretty vigorous lifestyle is it's stunning. And yeah, they it, did it with like Bridger. Didn't he have uh, the, the Whitman? who was later in the Whitman Massacre, didn't he carve a broadhead out of Bridger's shoulder blade? Yeah, 
at the he had been, at one carrying, of the he'd been carrying around for years, stuck yeah, in the a, bone of his shoulder there's blade. A, there's a there's an etching of that happening, and Bridger is is uh, leaning across a tree stump. Uh, why this while this guy literally, I think it's and I think the arrowhead had been in there for two or three two years, years. Yeah. and and you know. I guess he got super drunk and and let the guy kind of hack on him for a while, and he, re- he yanks out that arrowhead. And it was like a doctor doing. People yeah. point out being like the first sort of like first sort of Western style <laughs> right. official surgery west of some latitude line. You, right? can, you can imagine uh, the reality TV event that that was at the rendezvous. <laughs> the uh, the number of uh, people that stood around to kind of watch that. Um, can so, you walk? Yeah. Can you walk us through the Hugh Glass story? So the Hugh Glass first, can story, I ask you a question? Absolutely. I want you to do it, but I, 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 I'm, I'm too, I'm too <laughs> dying to know the answer to something. Um, do you buy? Like I know you know how Hugh Glass died. Yeah. yeah. You know what? Walk us through the Hugh Glass story, and then I want to ask you if you think that the legend of his death is true or not. But just walk okay. us through the Hugh Glass story. Pirates and everything. Okay. So uh, <laughs> first of all, I'll tell a, a bit of an embarrassing side story which is that uh, The Revenant is not the first book that I started to write. Um, I started to write another book, uh, which was going to be loosely based on me and my experiences as like a young legislative aide in Washington, D.C. And I got about... Yeah, you, you wouldn't be on this show. I, uh, well, I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting to that. I got about, you would have pissed away your chance to come on I got show. about I got about halfway through that book and started sharing it with a couple of friends who I could trust, who both told me that it was it was boring, and that was hurtful. That's, because that's a, really that's a, those are good friends. Actually, it's, it's, they're good friends, but it was hurtful because that was the fictionalized version of my life that they were talking about. <laughs> so, uh, so right about the moment that I was abandoning a novel based uh, on a fictionalized version of my apparently extremely boring life. I was, uh, I was reading a book uh, about the mountain man, a nonfiction book, and there were two paragraphs in it about Hugh Glass. And these two paragraphs said, uh, you know, there's this guy, he's mauled by a grizzly bear, horribly wounded. Uh, two of his comrades are left to wait for him to die and bury him. And instead of doing that, they uh, rob him and ab- abandon him. And first of all, out of uh, anger, he crawls 200 miles back to the last vestige of civilization and survives and re-equips himself and then goes out to seek revenge. And I'm like, okay, that's a pretty good story. That's a, that's a lot more interesting than my life. I'm going to write a book about that. So that's where I got interested in the in the story and started doing the research on on Hugh Glass to to write the book and and for me, uh, even when it's fiction, the the research that you get to do is is half the fun because I gotta not only read all about the mountain men but I gotta read all about wilderness survival and I gotta try and figure out you know what type of uh, of trap could a guy who can't use one arm uh, possibly. Uh, build that will allow him to get food if he, when he doesn't have a, a knife or a rifle or even flint and steel. What what would he do? And so I got to just do all sorts of these fun little uh, forays into areas that were interesting to do research on. Um, but the, that is the kernel of the story of of the part of Hugh Glass's life that he's most famous for, which is being attacked by 
mauled, horribly mauled by a grizzly, abandoned and robbed by his comrades, and then going out to seek revenge. But before that, uh, he had a remarkable life. And who knows how much of this is legend and, and how much is, is fact. But there's a, there's a really entertaining and quirky biography uh, of Hugh Glass by a guy named John Myers Myers. And it was written, I think, also in the 60s. And it's, it's, uh, it, is, uh, it, it feels a little bit like it was written in the 60s. But according to his biographer, he was originally a... Can, can I ask you what it yeah. means to feel like it was written in the 60s? It's, it is not politically correct okay. uh, at all. Um, and it has a very one-sided view of many aspects of, of, uh, of Western history. And he's just a, John Myers Myers, and I can't imagine he's still alive. He, you can tell he's, he's a, a, got character and is a quirky dude. And it's, it, this is not like a, a written, like a, a doctorate thesis. This is a, this is, uh, freewheeling, Mm -hmm. uh, which makes it kind of fun to read, but also makes you kind of wonder sometimes how much is true and how much isn't. So I won't vouch for any of this being true. The legend, uh, according to his biographer of, of Hugh Glass, is that he started off his life as a sailor and that he was on a ship that was captured by uh, the pirate uh, uh, or, or, or not pirate, depending on your version of history, uh, Jean Lafitte, and, uh, and imprisoned... Uh, uh, on an island off the shore of Texas and escapes from this uh, pirate island to the mainland of Texas. And this would have been in the 18-teens and uh, proceeds literally to walk from the Gulf of Mexico to what is now, uh, well, to St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, and has all sorts of adventures uh, along the way. Yeah, one, one could imagine it wasn't just a smooth it, it sailing. Was, it was not. Uh, there, there, there was no interstate. Uh, and so that's Hugh Glass's life before. In 1823, he signs on uh, with the Rocky Mountain Fur Company to go out and be part of one of these first trapping parties that goes uh, up the Missouri. And when they set out to do this, were they setting out to trap? Were they setting out to trade? Or were they setting out to do a combination of the two? Probably a, a combination. Um, most of the earliest trappers both trapped on their own, but also traded with uh, local tribes who would also bring in uh, furs, and then they would obviously send those send those downriver. And so probably both. Um. I want to jump to the death part, and then we'll get back yeah. to what happens in the middle of his life. Uh, do you buy that? And I don't even know where it comes from. Legend has it. I, I learned where it comes from. Oh, and it's not true? Well, I think it was true, and I'll tell you why. And this uh-huh. is where it, this is all coming together. Do you want to tell the story, or should I tell the story? Well, you tell the story, and then I'll tell the story, the version of it that I know. Uh, they're on the Yellowstone, and he's with some other trappers, and they get into a skirmish with Indians and they wind up holding up. Sorry. Do we know whereabouts on the Yellowstone? Yeah. Yeah. It was near the mouth of the Bighorn, wasn't it? Yeah. There was a, near the confluence of the Bighorn and the Yellowstone. They get into a skirmish with some, uh, Arikara, I think. Yep. 
and they wind up hold up in a coolie and they can't they, they got a little stronghold there but it's not looking good for them and the indians decided to just set fire to the grass and they set fire to the grass and hugh glass and his compatriots there know that shit's not looking good and they touch a match or touch a spark to a powder keg and kill themselves i don't buy it why not what's wrong with that well i'll tell you i'll tell you <laughs> i'll tell you the story that, that what I is read. wrong with that i'll tell you the story that i read first of all what i heard is that it happened in december uh, or january and the yellowstone was frozen so the grass fire bit seems a little implausible yeah, um that's a but, strike uh, against but, it but i don't but, think it puts it to death but hold on i got more <laughs> details and i'll tell you where they came from um so one of the fun little side forays in doing research for this new book, Ridgeline, is I read a biography about James Beckworth, the African-American mountain man. And uh, Beckworth claims to have found the body of Hugh Glass when he was killed. And the story that Beckworth tells is this. Uh, there was a trading post at the mouth of the uh, of the uh, Bighorn and the Yellowstone. That's that's a historical fact. They call it like Fort Cass or something. Fort right? Cass, I think, yeah. was one of the. I think in that era, and it bounced it. up and down like a couple miles this direction, yeah. a couple miles that direction. Because there's a couple different sites. So there's a trading post there, uh, Fort Cass, and I think they were primarily trading with the Crow. Uh, which were the, I believe, in that era, the dominant tribe in that part of the, 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 of the country. Exactly. And uh, a group of Crow comes into Fort Cass and wants to trade. Um, and there are not enough goods at Fort Cass to trade as much as the, as the, uh, as the Indians want to. And so they dispatch two men from Fort Cass to a fort that's 30 miles away that's affiliated to go get more trading goods to bring back and trade with the Crow. And Hugh Glass is one of the two guys that is dispatched to this other fort to go get more trading goods. And the story that Beckworth tells is that uh, Glass was crossing the frozen uh, Yellowstone River and... and was caught out on the ice in the open by a raiding party of Arikara, which was not expected in that territory in that era. And the Arikara catch him out on the glass and kill him. And Beckworth was one of the men who went out and found his mutilated body. Hmm. That's the story in that Beckworth tells. Well, who was the politician after they... Uh discredited the story of Paul Revere. Who is the politician that said, uh, I love Paul Revere, whether he wrote or not. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning I'm sticking with the powder keg story. Uh, well, look, I, I love Hugh Glass, whichever way he died. Uh, that's a still, that's still a pretty epic life. And whether or not he was a, a, uh, a captive of the pirates or not, look, he, uh, he, he, he did, he did a lot of shit. Um, and so uh, definitely one of those kind of epic uh, 19th century lives that I just think are so, uh, so much fun to, to study about. How do you pronounce the 
this the 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 spy intrigue novelist uh john law oh the carré the carré i think um, somebody will tell us if we're wrong i bet i thought it was pronounced le carré it could be maybe it's le car he's got a great quote where he said watching your book being made into a movie uh-huh. is like watching an oxen turned into a bullion <laughs> cube <laughs> uh th- really... what, what was the experience like for you um well, again, I'm not going to whine too much because. No, but we're not. Uh, I'm, you're not, I'm, not, I'm yeah. not asking. I'm not inviting <laughs> you to whine. I mean, it's like, listen, uh, I, it probably was the greatest thing to ever happen in the whole wide world. <laughs> it was a blast. Who wouldn't want? I it mean, was like, a blast. you'll notice that John yeah. LaCroix's books yeah. are all movies. They, they do okay. <laughs> They're um, all movies. And I will tell you that uh, before the movie was made, I'm not aware of anybody who read The Revenant who wasn't related to me or my friend. Um, <laughs> and so your mom's like, I haven't read your book. Oh, that reminds me of a great story, man. I just want to tell you a story real quick. I went to see this, this writer one time. And uh, I went to see like a bookstore event he did. And he told a story. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a really funny story. He told a story that he was one time in a used bookstore, okay, and sees his own book in a used bookstore <laughs> and opens it and it's the inscribed copy that he gave to his mother. <laughs> oh man, that hurts. Oh, that hurts. Like, I don't know how true uh, it is, but I just laugh my ass off. Man, I've seen a couple of inscribed <laughs> copies of mine for sale on eBay, uh, but my mom's never done that to me. She's, uh, I hope She not. sold it in a private sale. Mom, if you're listening, don't tell me. I don't want to know. Um, but, uh, but look, it it was a blast to have a, a movie made out of my book, and it gave the book uh, a huge life. The Revenant means back from the dead, and you know <laughs> that's literally what the Revenant means. You know, and, what? somehow I didn't know that. Yeah, that's what it means. Really, and it does. It. Uh, God, I feel I feel so like lazy now to have not found that out because I always <laughs> wondered like why. Well, it comes from French. Uh, from a, it's an it's an English word, revenant, but it comes from a French word, revenir, to return, to come back. Really? And so it means literally one who returns from the dead. God, that sounds like uh, halfway good at my job. That'll be my first question. <laughs> um, so look, I uh, I feel like the movie brought the book back from the dead, and uh, you know, a lot of people read the book who otherwise wouldn't have, and it's given me an opportunity to write more books, and I'm excited about that. Were so, you disappointed in how the book publishing experience went? Uh, initially, you mean when yeah. it when it only sold to my uh, mom and her friends? That stuff's devastating, man. <laughs> it's hard to crawl back. Um, I had that happen. It's hard to what? crawl back. It's uh, your book did your books have done well? No, my first. Well, they've done well over time. My first book didn't do well out of the gate. All right. Well, dude, it was horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. I didn't think they were going to let me write any more books. <laughs> well, I I. I'm having a lot more opportunities to write books uh, after The Revenant. Than sure, it's, man. It's, uh, it's easier easier now than it was before. But um, the the overall experience, I was overseas working for the U.S. government when uh, when the movie was was being shot, and so I was can, pretty. Can you back moved. up earlier than that? Sure. Um, How soon after publication? Right. Well, like when did someone come and say like when they bought the film rights, was it one of those deals where they give you like a dollar a year until it goes into production it was, or was it like a real sale? It was a real sale. Okay. It, 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 I still needed to work, uh, vigorously, but it was, you know, it was, it was more than a dollar a year for the option. But to tell you how long it took, uh, we optioned it, uh, actually before we sold the, the book, 
Uh, we sold. The, oh. we sold. We optioned the film rights before we sold the the book itself. Oh, that's great. Um, but the first time when I somebody told me it was going to be a movie, uh, and I got super excited about this, uh, they told me that it was going to uh, be directed by Michael Mann and oh. and star Daniel Day Lewis as Hugh Glass. And attention to uh, detail. And yeah, and over the course of the next. Uh, 12 years. No. Uh, really? Oh my God. Yeah. It was first optioned in 2001 and it became a movie in 2015, I guess. God, I'll never say die, man. So Revenant, Back from the Dead. So uh, it. That's the funny uh, thing is like, uh, I know, you know, so many writers who haven't been through this many times and they option something. Yeah. You know, and then they call up like, they're going to. Yeah. And I was like, no. Well, you got They're probably be, not going to. Yeah. What they told me at the beginning, and this, this set my expectations, is that about one out of three things that gets optioned turns into a movie. Oh, I didn't so, know that. Yeah. So my expectations were that the odds were against me. Okay. Um, but you I didn't call people telling everybody, like, it's going to be a big, huge movie. I, I didn't tell them it was going to be a... I was a little more circumspect than that, and it turned out to be a good thing for a long time. Um, and then even when it, you know, when I heard that, uh, you know, DiCaprio was going to star in it and yeah. uh, two was going to direct it. I still kind of, I had some scar tissue there that I didn't quite believe it. But, 12 uh, years. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, more, I guess uh, 14. It was 2015 and it, it became a movie and 2001 when it was first optioned. So I'd gone on with my life, believe me. I wasn't, sure, man. Uh, he kept cranking. I wasn't holding my breath. Yeah. Um, but, but look, when they, the, my big thing when I write books is I, I love history and I, I want my books to be as historically accurate as possible. And to me, that's part of the, even when you're writing fiction, uh, you ought to really care about historical accuracy because you don't want to mislead people. And, and frankly, history is so great that you don't have to make up tons of shit for it to be an amazing story. Um, that said, you know, the part of The Revenant, my book that people don't like is, is, uh, the ending and the ending of my book without giving it away is, is true to history. It is not a Hollywood ending. It's a story of love and forgiveness. Uh, it is, (laughs) it is, uh, it is not the good guy rolling around on the ground with the bad guy. And the movie I think was never going to get made without a Hollywood ending of the good guy rolling around on the ground with the bad guy. And, uh, and so where does uh, that pressure come from? Do you think? I think the one difference between book world and movie world is just the amount of money that's involved. Um, you know, when somebody publishes a book, they're not uh, risking uh, a whole lot of money. And if the book fails, and most books do, um, you know, the publisher doesn't lose their, their fortune. A big movie, and, you know, The Revenant, I think, was... $150 million to shoot and another $150 million to to publicize. So $300 million, they're not going to risk too much about people not liking the ending. And there's mm-hmm. a reason there's something called the Hollywood ending. It's because audiences like that. Audiences want the bad guy to get hacked up by the good guy. And... uh and so that's what happens in the movie. And, uh, and it worked because it made a half billion dollars. And so- yeah, it's surprising <laughs> what you're saying about that. It's an interesting point about the money because I, I used to kind of marvel at 
um, you know, a publisher with a certain amount of power can just on their own buy a book, right? If they've proven themselves, like one mm-hmm. individual with only getting like, they can just get a rubber stamp from right. who's ever above them and right. they can buy a book. Yep. And you could send some writer off into exile, yeah. you know, for a year and they come back and here's this thing. It's like, it's, it's been impacted by, like there's a couple people. Yeah. Right. But also it becomes this thing that's globally available. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not a lot that like went into it. Yeah. But here does, but that's a great point with like a movie. It's like, man, like uh, many, many careers. Yeah. Around the line, yep. huge amounts of money is on the line. It's not like this; like it just used to stop me. Like, how could it be like that easy to make a book? You know, the the uh, financial models are dramatically different between between book and film. And there's just uh, the the other example I always think is funny is uh, a a book contract is about six pages long, and basically the whole thing says they can't change a word without your permission. A uh, a movie contract is about 60 pages long and basically the whole thing says they can change anything they want without your permission. Mm-hmm. And, and so you, you go into the exercise knowing that, that your story is going to get changed and it's going to be a collaborative uh, enterprise. And if, if you're not comfortable with that, you shouldn't sign the contract. It's just, it's a, it's a different exercise. I mean, there's writers involved and directors and actors who interpret and, and committees who review, you know, look at all that stuff. Um, and so it's just, a, it's just a very different process. And, and look, uh, the, the, uh, from a very selfish standpoint, uh, I love the revenant cause it brought the book back to life, but there's, there's a lot of things I love about that movie. I think it, uh, uh, I think it does, uh, a, great job of kind of transporting people to kind of a different place in time and giving people a sense of just how hard life was in that era Mm -hmm. and the, you know, the, the courage of the people who went out there in that, in that timeframe and were willing to take that risk. Um, I think it's well acted. I think it's beautifully shot. Uh, I'm a little irked that, uh, you know, part of it takes place in a rainforest. Uh, I've been to South Dakota. It's a, beautiful state uh i didn't see any rainforest when i was there uh and so that part of it uh, uh bothered me yeah we've um, had a couple laughs <laughs> like you know we've joked about uh you know my dissatisfaction with it and this has like you know to be perfectly frank like this has absolutely nothing to do with you like i think it's, it's a phenomenal book uh i had known that story and loved that story my entire life and i um in hanging around the west i had developed that story to be that in my head it like occurred in the like arid grasslands the willow lined streams the sagebrush it did i've been there and it would be (laughs) as though someone told uh your own story and then your own story of growing up, but then put it in a different house. Mm. And so that really um, was a, a situation where I, I looked and I, I couldn't even pay attention to the movie. I was so like 
like just aghast, right? Because um, that's the most, I think that's like the most beautiful landscape on the planet, right? It's, the most, it's just like, the, it's just so ripe and rich. I, I love and that. To, and to, have, to imagine someone coming and saying, to imagine a director, a group of producers looking at that, the arid grasslands, like the Great Plains, looking and being like, oh, uh, no, not like that. I thought it'd be more like, right? Yeah. It's like, it's almost like, um, it feels to me like uh, them uh, disapproving of my like inner self. That's where my gripe, that, that's my only gripe. And it's like, we've gotten a little bit of mileage out of complaining about it. It was just that. It was like, it was like a condemnation of, uh, a, a landscape that is very dear to me. Yeah, we were talking uh, earlier. Uh, I I grew up on the high plains. I grew up in eastern Wyoming, and uh, you know, eastern Wyoming, like eastern Montana, like uh, a big chunk of of South Dakota, is is high plains, and I I love it. I think it's epically beautiful. Um, it doesn't look like what. Uh, people who don't live out here have in their mind's eye a lot of times when they think about Wyoming or Montana. When they, when people on the coast think about Wyoming and Montana, they think about uh, you know the Tetons and Glacier National Park and kind of the the epic mountain vistas. And I'll, don't get me wrong, I love the mountains too. Those are easy to. Uh, I think anybody can appreciate that. The uh, the high plains. Uh, they may, I wonder if they don't require most people to kind of grow up in that environment to be able to appreciate it the way that I think you and I do. Yeah, maybe it takes a little bit of a trained eye. A little bit more of an acquired taste. Uh, I think you, you kind of grow up in that and, and you, uh, I mean, just to, to give my irk about, my least favorite description of the planes is oftentimes writers who don't understand the planes will describe the featureless planes and it drives me crazy because when you walk across the plains, there is so much feature. Uh, it's just that it's a lot more subtle than, you know, a mountain uh, jutting up uh, uh, to a snow-capped peak. But, uh, you know, uh, ask the guys who rode over the ridgeline uh, in the Fetterman fight, uh, how flat it was how featureless it was because <laughs> yeah, there, there were say, there were well. 2,000 Indians hiding in that featureless plain and so ask them how featureless it it's was it's only featureless if you maybe haven't walked a few miles yeah. in it and once yeah. you have then Give it a you, shot. you wouldn't say that anymore yeah. I see yeah. I point out to people about hunting antelope will be like my antelope hunting strategy is basically you find some way off <laughs> And then the hunt plan is to hunt all the ones that you will encounter on the way over to the ones you see way off. Like, there's some. Let's just go in that direction. Yeah. Undoubtedly, we'll find many more yeah. in all the folds and creases that yeah. occur between here and there. You can see a long way on the plains. And I love, uh, you know, where I grew up uh, in eastern Wyoming, there were, you could see Laramie Peak. And that was... Uh, you know, that was 70 miles away from my hometown and you could see that uh, uh, clear as day. Uh, I love having a 70 mile horizon. That's a cool thing. But there was a lot between uh, 
between where you are and, and the horizon, and it's, it, 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 ain't feature, it ain't featureless. I want to get into the reprint of uh, Last Stand. Can I ask a quick question before we leave the movie? What did, uh, like, daily, or was there daily, what did collaboration look like between you and the folks that made the movie? So I, as I, as I mentioned, I was living overseas at the time, mm-hmm. you know, working for the, for the government and, and was, uh, you know, eight time zones away from where they were filming. So honestly, not a ton. Uh, but that said, the, uh, one of my, uh, good friends, a guy named Keith Redman, who's at a company called Anonymous Content, produ- produced uh, the the movie, and uh, he involved me in ways that he could. Also, the the screenwriter for The Revenant is a guy named Mark Smith, another great guy who's very uh, collaborative. And both Keith and Mark uh, were very generous in letting me know things that were going on. Uh, Mark Smith shared drafts of the script at a couple different junctures with me. Uh, I made my uh, historical points, which were pretty uniformly ignored, uh, but I had my chance at least to see the script and kind of see it evolve. Um, So uh, I was not uh, uh, involved in a detailed way. One of the things that uh, irked me out of that process of The Revenant is that I couldn't write the the screenplay because I'd never written a screenplay. And when I moved back to Montana, one of the things I learned how to do was uh, write screenplays because I kind of vowed that I would never have one of my stories mm. turned into a, a, you know, a, a movie again without me writing it. And so uh, I'm I'm hoping if there is if there's interest in in this new one, Ridgeline, that that uh, that I'll be the writer for that. Clean and protect your firearms with Riptide Armory. Riptide, a veteran-founded business, is dedicated to producing American-made cleaning chemicals and also dedicated to creating American jobs. And that commitment is embodied in every product that's bottled, labeled, and shipped from their Arvada, Colorado facility. Safe for all firearm types and surfaces. Embrace the power of American ingenuity and protect your firearms with the best. Visit RiptideArmory.com. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. I, for one, use it on all of my outboard engines up in Alaska every year. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. 
At O'Reilly Auto Parts, they offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. Man, I'm always swinging through my uh, local O'Reilly Auto Parts to get stuff ranging from car parts and accessories to boat batteries. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. And if you're a do-it-yourselfer and need a specialty tool to finish the job, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and ask about their loaner tool program. Simply pay a refundable deposit and borrow the right tool, then get your deposit back when it's returned. That way you don't have to go buy some you know, super expensive thing that you need like once every five years. Just borrow it and get your refund back. Need your windshield wipers replaced, brake light fixed, or quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Do you think that it's a little bit dishonest? Um, do you think there's a moral problem? with taking history like in the case of Hugh Glass and like what Hugh Glass actually did um, and making it be that something different happened? Do you think it's a little bit immoral? Um, I, I guess it depends on how extreme the, the retelling is and whether it uh, distorts a story in a way that, that uh, uh, I mean, for example, uh, I, I think the way that the Native American story has been told in traditional American Westerns uh, is uh, there is some immoral, immorality in that because mm -hmm. it, it, it doesn't tell very much about, about their perspective on things that were happening. Um, I understand that, uh, that, that people will also always seek to tell stories that are... Uh, interesting and compelling to an audience and entertaining to an audience. And some of that, I think, is is okay. One of the things I did at the end of The Revenant uh, and that I do at the end of my, of my new book is I put, I tell the reader where I've veered from the truth. Yeah. And if I made up a character, I tell him I made this character up. Because... You even point out that that you even acknowledge that there's some debate about whether or not it was Bridger. Yeah. Um, and I just think when I'm done reading a book, I want to know what, what was real and what wasn't. And obviously people can, can go do their own research. And I also try and list books that people can go read about nonfiction books to kind of learn for themselves or whatever. But I, I do think that uh, we live in an era where we've lost the line between fact and fiction and so I think there's an additional responsibility on, on writers, including writers of fiction, to be honest about where they are veering off uh, what is historical fact. And it doesn't mean that every story has to be a, a historical treatise. I think there's plenty of room for uh, fictional, historical fiction, uh, fictional tellings of historical events. But I think we have an extra responsibility to 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 be accurate and to help the reader know what's true and what's not. It gives you, yeah, because it helps you understand like what can and cannot happen in the world. Yeah, and uh, and I I mean I've always been irked by 
stories that, uh, especially films, because the, the medium of film is so powerful. And uh, there's, you know, there's whole generations of people uh, who uh, will see a film and that will be the main uh, sort of entree point that they have to a particular historical incident. And so, you know, uh, uh, stories with uh, uh, e extreme uh, conspiracies about the assassination of JFK, uh, to me, uh, bother me because I think they, they give a distorted uh, perception of history, for example. Uh, I want to touch on the reprint of Last Stand, but first I have a question for you because you, you, you know your mountain man stuff well. You mentioned Laramie Peak. Yep. What's your understanding of, uh, do you know the story of Laramie? Of Jacques Laramie? Yeah. Uh, or like bit. the sort of absence of a story of Laramie? Uh, well, you tell me, I, I'm not sure, I know a little bit about this, but I'm not sure exactly where you're going. No one knows <laughs> who the hell he was. Oh yeah, he's he's he like, known for he, he's known for being killed by the Indians, and then and then was or was not stuffed down under the ice in a beaver pond. Yeah, but um, then the guy went like Bridger, like I mentioned, he's got half the state named after him, yeah. this and other states. That dude made off like a bandit, <laughs> and no one knows who the hell he was. <laughs> he just uh, like shows up and promptly gets killed. And then well, <laughs> here's the thing: if you're gonna get killed in that era, try and get killed next to a river, because if you get killed next to the river. Uh, there's a good chance that the river is going to be named after you. And then uh, whatever forts and towns they put on the river might also get named after you. And if there's a mountain that bumps into the river, the mountain might get named after you. And, of course, that's exactly what, what happened with, with Jacques Laramé. Uh, and Lolo. Uh, yeah. Lolo uh, got killed. Like, as a dude, Lulu, he spelled, <laughs> his name's spelled a hundred ways. Yeah. Lulu, Lolo, whatever. Gets killed by a grizzly bear. And people are like, oh, you know the creek where old uh, Lolo got killed. Scott's Bluff. And then pretty soon it's like, Lolo the town, Lolo the creek, yep. Lolo the peak, Lolo the <laughs> national forest. And meanwhile, that no one knows early. the first thing about this dude. Well, I have in in the new book, I have Bridger as an old man, uh, kind of reflecting on the fact that there's a bunch of stuff named after him now, and and kind of. Oh, that was in his that. lifetime. Oh yeah, absolutely. Really? Um, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, and uh, being happy that he didn't have to die. I have him standing on top of Scott's Bluff, uh, which was named after Scott, who was... I don't know the story. He was... Uh, nobody, does, nobody else does either. Scott was killed by the Indians and died with his back up against Scott's Bluff, and so they named it Scott's Bluff. You know, um, Scott's Bluff. Scott's Bluff, you know, where <laughs> Scott died. Um, and I have Bridger reflecting on that, that, it, that he's happy that he didn't have to get killed to get stuff named after him. So uh, uh, anyway. I didn't a, know that that phenomenon. was hitting during his lifetime. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so he really was like, he's just a well-known dude. He's, he is a rock star in terms of fame in his, uh, well, certainly when he's a, 60 year old he's he's famous among the the soldiers that he's he's guiding i mean he's uh you know he was already uh, a legend in his own time and 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 it and it'd been a long time by the way he was it was he'd been on the planes for 40 plus years at the time he's guiding for the army so he's and this is a place where where there the numbers of people out here were not large and the numbers of places where they went were not large. So people bumped into each other. I mean, talking about Last Stand, the, you know, the, the, the person that that book's about, George Berg Grinnell, uh, I was amazed when I was doing the research on him because he meets 
he meets everybody. He meets uh, he meets Buffalo Bill. He meets he goes uh, campaigning uh, with Custer. Uh, he meets Brigham Young. I mean, he just oh, really? he bumps into everybody. And but it kind of makes sense because uh, you know it's kind of like being from a small state yeah, from like, Montana. He's like Forrest Gump. Well, he was like Forrest <laughs> Gump. Um, and uh, but you know, if you live in a in a small state like Montana, it's not crazy that you meet somebody and it doesn't take very long before you both know somebody in common. And it's because it's a big state, but there's, you know, there's not that many towns. And so I had no idea he knew Custer. Oh, not only did he know Custer, uh, we're talking about Grinnell now. Yeah. Um, and this, the Buffalo book uh, that's called Last Stand is about this, this 19th century hunter conservationist named George Bird Grinnell. And he, not only did he know Custer, but he goes on campaign with Custer in 1874 when Custer is sent out to survey the Black Hills. And shoots a big old grizzly. Shoots a huge grizzly. There's an amazing photo. <laughs> it's a nice bear, man. That's an amazing bear. Um, and, but it's on that. The other thing Custer takes along on that expedition is he takes miners with him because there's rumors of gold in the Black Hills and Custer wants to be the one to discover it. And they discover gold on this 1874 exploration. Custer sends a messenger back to Fort Laramie to tell him that there's gold in the Black Hills. And the gold rush is on uh, into the heart of the the territory that was given back uh, to the the Lakota and the Cheyenne at the end of the Fetterman Massacre— they said, you're right. Uh, so when, when, when Fetterman's defeated and the U.S. Army retreats, they give back uh, to, the, to the Lakota and the Cheyenne. Hadn't the, the, La- the Lakota taken the Black Hills from the Cheyenne? From, from the northern not, Cheyenne? Well, from, it's even more complicated than that. And I, there were all sorts, you know, the, the, all sorts of tribes are in there. And that's a complicated prehistory. But uh, just in terms of the U.S. piece of the history, they seed it back uh, in 1867, I think, which is when they negotiated the treaty uh, after, the, after the Fetterman fight. And then they, in 1874, when they discover gold, they say, changed our minds. You know, we know we have given you two treaties now, but the sec- second one we want to renegotiate as well. Uh, when, when the Lakota won't renegotiate, it's war. And that's when Custer then, that sets in motion the events that lead to uh, the battle of the Little Bighorn within a year and a half, two years. We were talking about fame, Bridger having fame. Custer was known to the people that killed him. Yeah. And there, I guess there's some debate about whether or not they, he had just recently cut his hair. He cut his hair short. His wife took the hair and then after his death had a wig. <laughs> made of her husband's hair. She's a fascinating character herself. Um, and there's like debate about whether or not the Sioux and Northern Cheyenne recognized Custer's body on the battlefield. Because he didn't have his hair. And there's a woman that pointed out that that we found him and knew who he was huh. and that she had taken a sewing awl and punched a hole through his eardrums. Uh-huh. So that in the afterlife he would better hear the warnings. Yeah, 
and then she used her pony to kick up dirt on him. It's and a, she says it's that a she rec- yeah says that she knew him. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, people running around knowing each other. Yeah, it's who's uh, coming for you. It's you know, people were there. There were not huge numbers of people in even it's, though it's vast territory. There were not huge numbers of people. So walk us through Grinnell. Oh, R- go real ahead. quick though, did you did you when you researched all this stuff? Did you find that these guys ever reflected? Because like you, like Steve was saying, they died so much, right? So at age sixty, did you ever find them reflecting? on how lucky they must have been? Well, um, I didn't find... There, there's, there's some great uh, people who write when Bridger was still alive about conversations they had with him. And they'll... So there are these 19th century people saying, I was on a, uh, I was on a long ride, horseback ride with, with Bridger and he told me this story or I was at Fort Laramie at the same time that Bridger was there and I heard him tell all these stories and I'm gonna write on, I'm gonna write down all these stories he told. So there's there's those types of of stories. Um, I don't remember Bridger ever actually saying or being said to have said that he had been lucky. Um, but I I just again it's hard to imagine that that he didn't recognize that right. there was some measure of of luck in there. And and Look at somebody like Hugh Glass. I mean, Hugh Glass was a talented frontiersman and a tough badass who survived, you know, being mauled by a grizzly bear and crawling 200 miles by himself with no weapons. Um, And he still ends up, I think, uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, walking across the frozen Yellowstone and gets caught and killed. And, right. and so he had a day of bad luck. I wonder if he was and, quick to realize, like, this ain't good. Uh, you gotta think. <laughs> it's like, but the He's other like, thing, I've been through a few scraps, but uh, this ain't good. The other thing about those guys is, you know, we think about, like, getting mauled by a grizzly bear or dying in a, in a fight with, with Indians. But, you know, if, if you're out on your own in the frontier and you snap your ankle, you're friggin' dead, you know? The the odds that you can or or you get sick, and in the middle of the winter and you're off on your own, the the odds that you can you know do all the things you need to do to survive with a broken ankle or if you're laid up with a fever for two weeks, it, I don't think it took very much for a lot of those guys to to die, and uh, it's just that those aren't as as movie worthy. You know, the guy who died of the flu. Yeah. You know, I, I want to touch. I, I keep, I, I do want to get to the, this uh, Grinnell gentleman, but I have to tell you another thing. Uh, have you read the the journal? I've been talking about it a lot lately. Life and Death at the Mouth of the Muscle Shell. No. It's a guy, he spends a couple of years at the mouth of where the muscle shell flows into Missouri. Like uh-huh. most of the action takes place, it's all underwater now because right. of Fort Peck Reservoir. Um, it's just his like daily account. So it'd be like Monday, you know, sunny and warm. River came up two inches. Tuesday, when huge it, fight. Bob the, got killed. What's the era? The eighteen sixties. Okay. Yeah, huge fight. Bob got killed. Uh, <laughs> finally found Dave's body. Like Wednesday, sunny again. Turned cold toward evening. Um, the historian that that collected and published this journal and commented on this journal uh, took it upon himself to try to cor- corroborate the existence of all of these individuals who are coming and going from this outpost at the mouth of the Muscle Shell River. Uh-huh. 
So the guy will be like, you know, old, you know, Jed Tompkins came through on the way to check his wolf poison baits, right? And then the historian will go and, who is Jed Tompkins? And he's like, turns out we find record of Jed Tompkins uh, taking a line of credit at some store in St. Louis. And he's able to find 75% of the people that come and go. Right. Out of some other mention, some sometimes like like there's a woman that gets scalped and survived. Um, he later learns that she he, he writes about how she wore men's clothing. Um, everybody called her names that he said names that can't be mentioned, and you get this portrait of this woman that there's this woman who's probably gay mm. at a time it was completely unacceptable, dressed as a man. Mm-hmm was named all these derogatory remarks. She eventually marries a guy. He moves her down to Colorado. She blows her brains out. All you hear about her right. in the life and death of the mouse of the muscle shell, so-and-so got scalped and looks like she's going to make it. But he then was able to like, <laughs> right. put like who, like, who the hell was this, right? And it's just, it's just, just like heartbreaking story yeah. of like someone who eventually, like whatever, resigns, marries a guy and kills herself. Yeah. Like what the hell happened there? But uh, I was reading this other book recently, and there's this like this character that emerges in the late 1800s in Miles City, Montana, and there's no mention of him. But this, there's this kid whose dad was a doctor in mm-hmm. Miles City in the late 1800s, and the kid he's like later on in life he's describing who comes to his dad, who's a doctor. Yeah. He describes a guy coming in who had been long ago scalped, mm-hmm. and it was all healed over, but you can still see the veins on top of his head. And all of his fingers had been removed at the at the middle joint. Oh God! Okay, who the hell was that guy? Yeah, right. Like that's there's so, a story there. And one hand we're talking about how everybody <laughs> knows these people and they're always running yeah. into each other. But also it's like, how do you get to be that guy? Yeah. And the only mention is some kid later recollects that this dude paid his dad a visit at a doctor yeah. and had been tortured and had all of his fingers removed at the knuckle and his scalps removed. And then like no one else wrote this down. Yeah. If you were running around town now, missing your scalp and yeah. all your fingers, you would make Somebody your way would, into uh, lots of materials. Yeah. The fact that that was not more noteworthy <laughs> tells you something about the general oh. population. Reading that, I'm like, okay, I understand it. I understand everything now. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> right. uh, but um, George Bergrunel. Um, so I'd never heard, I had this, I was interested when I read your. Uh, when I read American Buffalo, your book, at kind of your entree point to the Buffalo story and finding the skull mm-hmm. and then going on this hunt. Which sits in my living room today. I got to see that. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it was interesting to me that that was kind of your entree point. My entree point to the Buffalo story is after I wrote the book about uh, Butte, I, was, I had this luxury of, of literally a month where my, my job was to go find a new story to write about. Uh-huh. And I went to the University of Montana library and for a month, literally just wandered the stacks, kind of follow my nose from thing that interested me to thing that interested me. And as I did that, I kind of started getting the idea. I'd always been fascinated with the buffalo and I thought about doing a book about the buffalo. And then my idea was I was going to do a book about the history of the West as told through the buffalo. And I thought it was cool because you could yeah. do prehistoric times. You could do Native Americans before the arrival of the whites. You could do 
you know, the, the fur trade, you could do the early fur trade era, you could do the buffalo hunting era, you could do the birth of the conservation movement. You could tell that whole story just through the prism of the buffalo. And that was the book that I was going to write. And then I came across this guy, George Berg Grinnell, who I'd never heard of, who it turns out doesn't live through all of that exactly, but he, his life, uh, he lives through a significant chunk of it. And, uh, and I couldn't believe I'd never heard of him before because he literally is in many ways the, the guy who's most responsible for preserving Yellowstone National Park, for uh, the establishment of Glacier. And along the way, he's largely responsible for saving the buffalo from being you know, completely exterminated on the North American continent. And so uh, I decided I'd write the, use him as kind of the human vehicle to tell the story of the buffalo in a, in a somewhat similar way to, to which you use your own experience of finding the skull and, and going on the hunt and then weave in uh, other parts of the story. Uh, All the weird stuff. Yeah. But speaking of which, and I, I really appreciate your constructive criticism on The Revenant. And, uh, and I was just going to ask you about something. In, <laughs> like uh, why I don't talk about Grinnell? No, well, there's that. I mean, how did you miss that? Come on. I think I mentioned But you, I think the reason you didn't talk about Grinnell is because you devote so many paragraphs to the buffalo penis. There is like long, long paragraphs about the buffalo penis. I know, my book. editor's like, we it's either like, got to cut this really influential figure, Grinnell, <laughs> or you got to cut some of your penis material. <laughs> And, that, and, and, I, and I slept on it and, and decided just to... And the decision you made probably explains why your Buffalo book sold more than mine did. So, uh, <laughs> but as a result, I can't, even, like, I can't even have my children read this anymore. It's like, I mean, come on. What the hell? So anyway, um, but we digress. Yeah, I think that I, uh, as being not a historian, I'm able to just focus, like I said earlier, I made a joke about it. I'm able to focus on the weird stuff. <laughs> Well, that's the great thing about the 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 buffalo, though, is I I love a lot of the the factoids about about the buffalo, like you know, ten times more hair per square inch than a cow, which kind of helps you explain why they do okay on mm-hmm. um, you know the frozen prairie and the birth and, success rate. Yeah, compared to a cow, yeah, that was amazing when and, I read that. And not only that, but. It's still, it's amazing to me that a buffalo calf stands at two minutes and can run with a herd at the age of one hour. Like, oh, I, don't, yeah. I don't even get physiologically how muscles can possibly work to do that. There's, there's, a, uh, there's a recorded incident of, I think, a three or four day old calf running 70 miles with a herd. And just like, I, th- that's an amazing animal. And so it's, it's not surprising in a lot of ways that it has this kind of iconic stature that it does. But one of the things I love so much about, about the Grinnell story is it really is about the birth of the conservation movement. And the birth of the conservation movement really is about hunters in a really significant way. What do you, think, what do you, think, it, what do you think it was? Was it like a, was it like like oh my god, what did we do like like what was in these guys' heads? Because he was a hunter, yeah. right? I mean, he was totally a hunter. Um, well, he has. I'll talk about Grinnell and then and then the hunter piece of it because I think he had a couple of incredibly unique experiences that made him, I think, able to 
understand what was going on better than most other people could have at the time. One thing he understood is when he, right when he got out of college, and he, this is a, a guy who's an East Coast elitist and goes to Yale, and uh, his father's a rich New York lawyer, uh, but he wants to go West. Grinnell wants to go West. And he comes out in, I think, 1870 with a Yale professor who's doing a dinosaur bone hunt in, uh, in the West. And so he comes out, uh, you know, and they're all over like Nebraska, Wyoming, and- It's still a war zone. The U.S. Cavalry uh, guarded them while they, <laughs> while they dug. But what he's digging up- Can you imagine what the locals thought of that? Oh my God. They're yeah. going to be like, homie, you mean, <laughs> you, mean to tell, you mean to tell me? <laughs> yeah. But what Grinnell is doing in 1870 is he's digging up like Triceratops bones in Nebraska- and camel bones, and miniature horses. And so what Grinnell understood from his own kind of uh, tangible experience is that extinction could happen. Uh-huh. And this is in an era of the, the myth of inexhaustibility, where people, not for crazy reasons, by the way, thought, we can't kill all the buffalo. There's so many buffalo. The, the resources out here are, are inexhaustible. And, and so, but Grinnell had that, that experience of seeing that some stuff that uh, used to be living wasn't here anymore. So that was one of his, his experiences. His other experience... That and he is, made that connection. He didn't at the time use what people who are uncomfortable with evolution and extinction on religious grounds today would say. It's just like the earth was created old. He was a hardcore scientist. Um, and he didn't have any problem with that there are animals that, that, that came and went and lots of time has passed. And... Now, I think he was, I think he viewed that from, uh, in a very, uh, for his era, especially uh, state-of-the-art scientific way. Gotcha. Um, well, it's kind of so, amazing to his age, right? Because, I mean, yeah. he's just a college kid. Yeah. And to have sort of those kind of thoughts already, you know, figuring that out from seeing that is pretty amazing. Yeah. And he would have been, you know, with a group, you know, he's with a group that was led by uh, the, one of the... <laughs> you know, foremost uh, scientists of his day who would have been, they'd been, would be sitting around the campfire at night, presumably talking about, you know, dinosaur bones. But he did have that very unique experience. The other experience that I think he had that really touches on the hunter piece of it is his boyhood neighbor was the widow of John James Audubon. Hmm. Uh, Lucy Audubon, and she's old lady at this point, and John is already dead. But they lived in. There were these barns on the property where, like, all of John James Audubon's old travel stuff was stuffed. You know, stuffed you mean his animals. collections. Well, his paintings too, but mm-hmm. like all the the things he gathered as he as he came back, all the paraphernalia he picked up. And Lucy Audubon becomes his tutor. And so first of all, he's tutored when, at a time when people were learning reading, writing, and arithmetic. He's all, also learning about natural science. And not only that, but she is instilling in him uh, this ethic of what she called self-restraint. And what self-restraint basically meant was that you don't consume everything that you can. 
And when you think about the contrast of that in kind of the robber baron era that he lived in, and combined with kind of the myth of inexhaustibility that we could never use everything up, he had this particularly unique perch to kind of view the world. And it shaped his view, first of all, of what the responsibility of sportsmen was. And, you know, uh, this is the era when they're starting to figure out that we shouldn't hunt things, you know, uh, 12 months a year. There should be a season for hunting things. Uh, We shouldn't go out and kill every uh, uh, animal that pops up in front of us. There should be limits that we put on ourselves. And you ask a question, what is it about hunters? And I think that they were one of the first groups of people to go into wilderness and not and, and see it as a place to to recreate and they wanted to preserve that because they wanted to come back the next season and have it not be gone and they wanted to bring their 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 kids back and have them be able to have the same experience the same way that hunters do today and i think that ethic of the wild being a place that had intrinsic value that we should preserve uh, when you think about it, it makes complete sense that it came in significant part from hunters. That's my explanation. Yeah, a certain type of hunter, because there's an interesting point in American history where these guys coexist with the market hunters. Yep. These people we've been talking about and kind of like celebrating throughout this conversation, um, Boone, Bridger, Glass, right? Frontiersmen and later mountain men um, were rapacious. Like they, you know, I, I don't know, uh, you know, they would stack up like astounding numbers of animals. And then there came to be this point in time when all of a sudden you had sport hunters, mm-hmm. wealthy, like generally wealthy from the East, sport hunters. And the first thing that these sport hunters needed to do Kill to, win, yeah. to win was to put these other guys out of business. <laughs> We generally sit around like celebrating the accomplishments of these guys that were regarded by the sport hunters as the enemies. Mm-hmm. You know, like Roosevelt and the early Boone and Crocker Club and whatever they had, like the these different societies and hunters groups. Kind of like the first thing they needed to do was like, first thing we're going to do is try to somehow sabotage commercial wildlife markets. Pass a rule that you can't serve wild game in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now, like hunters today, we, we kind of like celebrate the accomplishments of these conservationists like Roosevelt, Grinnell. Um, but when we really want to talk about who we admire, like it's, it's Bridger and Glass because like the skill set was amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and look, hopefully we gain knowledge as we progress as individuals and as a people. And uh, the world looked very different in... Uh, the 1830s to Jim Bridger than it did even by the 1870s. And certainly by the 1880s, when, uh, when the last of the, of, the, of the Montana herd is wiped out, uh, we knew at that point that the that inexhaustibility of resources was a myth because the buffalo were gone. Um, there, there's this uh, statistic I came a- across in reading about, because you know you point this out in your book too, the the arrival of the railroad is lights out for the buffalo, 
because it's the infrastructure for commercial hunting. Um, the reason they trapped beaver in the 1830s instead of buffalo is because buffalo pelts, buffalo hides are too damn heavy. You can't move them. Uh, a beaver pelt weighed two pounds, and they could stack them up and stick them on a canoe and and send them downriver. And that was a viable business. They, they couldn't exploit the buffalo in the 1830s because they couldn't transport the hides. And what the railroad does, first of all, when it arrives in Kansas, and then when it arrives in Miles City in Montana, is it creates the infrastructure to transport the hides back east, and then it's it's lights out. And so I think uh, you you lived in Miles City, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. I think the railroad arrives in Miles City in 1881, I want to say. Yeah, winter, uh, um, winter 81, 82. So yeah. uh, the buffalo hunters come in with the railroad. In 1882, the railroad keeps statistics. And there were 200,000 hides that were the railroad shipped out of Montana in 1882. Uh, it took, I think, 70 rail cars. That was the equivalent of 70 rail cars. In 1883, the railroad shipped out 40,000 hides. So it goes from 200,000 hides to 40,000 hides. In 1884, there was one boxcar of buffalo hides that the railroad ships out of the state, and then it's over. That's it. I liked it, Hornaday. Um, you know, he comes out. I can't remember what year, but around 83 or 84. From the Smithsonian. Yeah. Comes out to collect some <laughs> bodies to try to like shoot the last one just to bring it back. And he points out that uh he points out that those hide hunters, you talk about like the inexhaust the myth of inexhaustibility. He points out that the hide hunters that were hanging around Still were believed. convinced yeah. that more would come yep. from the north. Yep, that there's hide And then he's like just Canada. over time they gradually found their way into ranching yeah. and various things. And they eventually were like, huh? Yeah. I guess. Oops. Maybe they're not, not coming. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's so and they, many. They sort of became the they, they became the sort of social fabric yeah. of the town. Yep. Um, and you, when you read about uh, Montana history in the, in the 1890s, and I did a bunch of research on, on Butte, there's all sorts of people who are identified as former Buffalo hunters for exactly that reason. It's like, <laughs> Yeah, uh, nobody in the eight ninety in the eighteen nineties is still a buffalo hunter. There, <laughs> but there's a lot of former buffalo hunters. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, and the Hornaday thing. I mean, think about what it means that the Smithsonian Institution uh, sends out a crew to find what they hope is kind of the last buffalo, so they can kill it because they view that as the only way that they can you know quote unquote preserve the buffalo in order to have one in the Smithsonian stuffed so that people can come look at it and see what it was like. Um, I mean, think, think about what that, that says about, you know, the, the moment we were at. And frankly, that's one of the things that makes Grinnell so amazing is the one place where there's buffalo, wild buffalo still living in the lower 48 is Yellowstone. And Yellowstone in the 1880s has been established as a national park. I think it's established in 1872. But it's been completely ignored. Um, it, it's always ironic me, to me when I go to Yellowstone because the sweatshirts always have, you know, Yellowstone 1872 because that's the year it was established. But the only reason Yellowstone was established is because they had figured out there was no gold there. 
And so it wasn't that they wanted to preserve this place. It was that they, they deemed it as having no economic value. And so they're like, whatever. And so they established Yellowstone Meaning National Meaning no, certain, no surface gold. No surface gold. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is probably all they knew about. Yeah, which is what they were after in that era. Um, and so what's significant about Grinnell is he fights to preserve Yellowstone and wild places when it actually, when there's a contest with a commercial interest. And the commercial interest at the time was the railroads, which were, of course, the big business of the day. And the railroads want to build a spur through Yellowstone National Park. Um, and Grinnell and the Boone and Crockett Club and Teddy Roosevelt fight that. Um, and in 1894, they passed the Lacey Act, which basically, for the first time ever, established penalties for destroying wildlife and made it have an economic cost and also took on a vested economic interest, namely the, the railroads, in order to, to establish that, and they win. So really, it's that year, 1894, that is, that is the, t- to me, the more important year uh, in terms of the history of Yellowstone. Because yeah. that's, when, that's when, we, when we decided, even though it's not easy, and even though there's competing interests, we're still going to protect Yellowstone National Park. There's a really boring book except it would be interesting to two or three people in the history of the Lacey Act because it is still a very powerful wildlife tool yep. to this day. Yep. And the foresight of the people who created that. I mean, how many, how many laws from 1894 do we still think about today? Yeah. Just for, for folks to understand, like the Lacey Act gives, um, when you commit wildlife crimes and those wildlife crimes move across state lines, it gives some real teeth yeah. to enforcement. And it made it that at the time, states that might've been lackadaisical about wildlife laws, um, it, it gave like some, it gave some federal oversight on wildlife stuff. So the minute you did some poaching and still this how it works today, like you might do some poaching in one state and drive across. There's even Lacey Act prosecutions where someone poaches something in one state, but they drive the head to their taxidermist 20 miles down the road who right. happens to be in a different state, that also becomes a federal crime. Yeah. It's a Lacey Act violation. Yep. And they, they still use it, I imagine it gets used on a daily basis today. What The, the other thing that I love about, uh, about Grinnell in terms of his vision and foresight is he was an incredibly canny political operator because he was fighting against the railroads and he knew that the most powerful force of his day was, I mean, the railroads invented lobbying, literally. And, uh, and Grinnell knew that he needed his own constituency and uh, he needed to change the narrative. And so his, he also used social media the day, which was magazines. I mean, this was a, the era after the civil war is, the golden age in some ways of, of magazines that there's all these magazines that flourish, including the one that he was the, the, the publisher of, uh, which is forest and stream. And he used that, that magazine to, to, uh, editorialize to hunters, uh, every week. And his theme was public land. And totally. And because nobody knew what public land meant then, and what he explains to people is public land means you own it. You hunter in 
you know, who doesn't live in, uh, in Wyoming or Montana, you own a piece of Yellowstone. And when somebody is uh, exploiting resources in Yellowstone, they're stealing from you. And you should be pissed off about that. And so Grinnell editorializes on this for years to kind of build this theme and this ethic of public lands. And he's incredibly successful at doing it. But he's a, a lot of the reason why, why we have a, an ethic today that is, you know, supports public lands. So he's an amazing character. Uh, I want to hit you with one last question. If you, if someone says to you, like, what are your books about? Do you, do you, have you ever taken the time or felt the necessity to bundle them in your head as being, I write about, and don't tell me the yeah. West. That, that, that's not going to suffice. Well, I, uh, I first and foremost love compelling, vivid, action-laden stories. That's the type of stuff I like to read. That's the type of movies I like to watch. I love good stories. And to me, it just so happens that the West is full of good stories, and I've loved them since I was a little boy. But to me, what makes a story a story that I really want to marry for a couple of years is that it has lessons for today. And I hope all the stories that I write have interesting lessons for today that can help us to better understand our lives today. And more and more, uh, the more the country becomes politically divided and the more and more it becomes difficult to have a rational debate between people who disagree, the more and more I think history is important because I think sometimes if you look at something that is historical, people don't have all of the visceral baggage that goes with contemporary debates. That's not always true, obviously. But we can be a little bit more dispassionate today, for example, about the buffalo and the demise of the buffalo and the lessons to be learned from that. And you can sit down in a bar and have a conversation with people that, about that. And most people would probably agree, you know, it's, 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 uh, we should not have, have exterminated them from the planet in the way that we did in a way that you couldn't have that same conversation sitting down in a bar about global warming. Mm -hmm. And yet there's a lot of lessons from studying the Buffalo that should be relevant to how we look at an issue like global warming or, uh, or the environment today. So to me, that was a long winded answer to your question, but I love vivid, compelling adventure stories that have lessons that are relevant to our lives today. That suffices. That's the hell a lot better than just saying the West. <laughs> they all happen to be in the West, but uh, anyway. That's fair. <laughs> Yanni, what do you got? You got any uh, rapper uppers? Hmm, I can try. Oh, I, yeah. so you can always cut it out, like Steve says. So Steve will interrupt me halfway through if it's no good. You know, reading some of the articles that Corinne found that were like when Steve started earlier that were people like sort of talking about you as the author of The Revenant, but you couldn't really comment because of your job. And when I was reading that and simultaneously reading The Last Stand and kind of looking like you just talked about Grinnell being like this great political, you know, strategist, you've done similar stuff like that in your job, right? Having to like step up to the table with, I mean, working at the World Trade Organization 
160 some countries and right and having to like make big deals happen do you ever like find comparisons all the time and in fact the most vivid political lessons that i have learned were not you know living in washington dc for a bunch of years as i did after i got out of law school the most vivid political lessons that i've learned were researching george bird grinnell and his battle against the railroads to preserve public lands and seeing how he did that at a time when the odds were completely stacked against him. And of course, there is no place on the planet that has more political history per square inch than Butte, Montana. And uh, if you want to learn about politics, uh, study the fight between uh, the unions and the Standard Oil Company at the turn of the century and see uh, on both sides the lessons that were applied there. Um, it is a graduate course in politics. So there is no question that the most significant political lessons of my life have been drawn out of 19th century Montana history. Good. Yeah. I'm not cutting that shit out. You like that one? Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Author Michael Punk with an E on the end. That's true. Michael Punk, so you can find him. P-U-N-K-E, author of currently. Ridgeline. It's not, won't be out until June. But we'll look for it. Uh, but otherwise, author of The Revenant, uh, Fire and Brimstone, Last Stand. Okay. Thank and Ridgeline forthcoming. Thank you for joining us. In the, I, Thanks and a I, lot. And I trust that a bunch of people will go buy your books and you'll be thinking that it wasn't such a bad idea to <laughs> come out and defend your, come out and defend your movie. I uh, had a blast. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet. Because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater.